The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We welcome you. We love to uh, have folks into our home two or three times a year. Uh, Newcomers brunch. You get to meet some of the pastors, some of the elders, and uh, we get to celebrate together, get to meet you. So if you are new in the last six months or so, have not been part of a Newcomers event, uh, if you would kindly raise your hand. If you didn't get one of these in the mail, many of you received them in the mail. Last six months or so, new to TBC, haven't been part of a Newcomers, raise your hand, keep them high, and uh, we'll present you with one of these this morning. It is an adult-only event, but we do provide childcare here at uh, TBC and uh, we're or 10 to noon. The other thing, uh, next Sunday, TBC introduction. Some of you have been here longer and you'd like to know about uh, TBC, a lot of specifics in those things or there. This week is also Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's designated by uh, evangelicals across the world as Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a day when we uh, remember Roe versus Wade and uh, the issue of abortion in our nation. And uh, as we were thinking about that, uh, t- two of our dear friends here at TBC came forward and said they were willing to share their stories. So uh, watch this video, Gino and Patty um, Pitts, as they share with us their experience. Well, good morning. As, as most of you know, this is I didn't know we were going to have all these interruptions. <laughs> my name's Gino. This is my wife, Patty. This is our story. We both grew up in Christian homes, went to church every Sunday. I accepted Christ as as a young man, young child, actually. I went to the men's conference last year, and all the men's testimonies had one thing in common with mine, and that was, then I met this girl. I met Patty, most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. I was a nerd, nerd before Bill Gates and Steve Jobs made being a nerd cool and she was gonna go out with me. We saw each other every weekend. I would drive up, spend the weekend with her, then drive back home in time to go to work. I knew that this was the girl that uh, I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. Then one night in the middle of the week, I get a knock on my door late at night. I was 22 years old. I had met the man of my dreams. He was a home builder and I was working as a decorator. So that's a match made in heaven. I thought my life was perfect until I bought a test. I jumped in my car and I drove for two hours to tell him the results of that test. He didn't say anything. He just held me while I cried. And then I decided right then, since he didn't have any arguments, that I was going to terminate this pregnancy. He told me that I did not have to do that but he didn't tell me not to do that. Looking back, I can see that, you know, we lived two hours away. She didn't have to tell me. She could have just went and had it done. I would have never known. But I realized that she came and told me and wanted me to talk her out of it. I didn't do it. I failed her. And more important, I failed God. We never spoke of it to anyone. And for years, we never spoke of it between ourselves. It was never, ever mentioned. It was our secret. Neither one of us ever felt worthy of being parents. 
but fortunately, God saw us differently. He has blessed us now with two beautiful boys. At times we would be shopping, and um, I couldn't find Patty. I'd finally find her. She'd be over in the little girl clothes, going through the racks, looking at them. And I thought to myself, why is she looking at little girl clothes when we just have boys? Then God reminded me that child that y'all ended this life that fateful day that would have been your little girl the guilt and shame regret just washed all over me over the years I suffered um, through depression that I kept hidden from everybody um, but at times it was so deep that I, I could just barely put one foot in front of the other it was three years ago today that we came into church and a video began to play. And the video was about the conception, life, and growth of a baby. And it hit me all of a sudden like a ton of bricks. I have been suppressing this secret now for 23 years and it all came flooding in and I remembered exactly what I had done. And I looked down at my bulletin, and on the inside it said the Hope Pregnancy Center was looking for counselors. And it gave the woman's name to contact, the telephone number, the address, the date, and the time. And I knew that that was God writing on the wall for me right there. That was Him calling me to this ministry. When she told me that she was going to volunteer at Hope, I thought, well, you know, this is, this is good. This will be her chance. She can make this thing right with God. And uh, she tells me, you know, I'm going to have to tell my story. I said, well, okay. But she didn't tell me I was going to have to tell mine. And she tells me, we have to go to this weekend retreat, this two-day retreat, and uh, you're required to go with me if I'm going to be a volunteer. So like a good husband, I did. And while there, um, you know, I'd ask God for forgiveness, and yet we were still trying to make this right. And I realized something I really already knew was that there was nothing that I was ever going to be able to do to make this right to God. And I realized that uh, at the foot of the cross, Jesus made it all right. He leveled all of our sin there. There is light on the other side of the darkness of this secret that you're keeping. And God wants you to heal from it. All you have to do is call on Him, and He's there for you. What a powerful story of God's love and forgiveness. Jen and Patty, would you stand? Would you thank them for sharing their story with us this morning? Thank you, guys. They'll be at the table in the hallway, and uh, they mentioned to me the healing they found was through Christ and also through Hope Pregnancy Center. And so if you or a young person out there wrestling, should I keep this baby or not, or maybe you've been through an abortion, or maybe you uh, were part of an abortion as a man who has never really dealt with those things, that we encourage you, based on what you've heard, based on what's available, to recognize, as Gino so poignantly said, there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And the Savior does give you that. And I, I pray that you would respond accordingly. Stop by the table. Thank them. And uh, deal with your own life accordingly as we love and care for you. You received an insert when you came in, a couple of inserts. 
and uh, to help you with those issues. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at Acts chapter 9 beginning in verse 32 and go all the way to the end of chapter 10, verse 30. Uh, or I'm sorry, verse, uh, yeah, that's right, verse uh, 30. In our staff meeting, we said, well, if you do that, uh, basically, uh, actually it's verse 48. Uh, if you do that, you can read the text and you'll be done because there'll be no time left for anything else. And so they're right. So we're not even going to read that section. I'm going to retell it to you and we're going to look at it together. It's a section uh, that uh, it deals with uh, the introduction of the Gentiles into the church. And so I've entitled this message, uh, Not Them. Uh, Jim, my clicker just quit clicking. Uh, did you do that or did I do that? I did it? Okay, thank you. And uh, we're, we're going to look at this. When, when the Apostle Paul came to faith, and I appreciate Bob Weber and Dave Tate teaching the last two weeks of my absence. Uh, when the Apostle Paul came to faith, he had been a persecuted church, and a whole lot of people said, not him, not him. There's no way we're going to accept him. There's no way we're going to be around him, not him. And now we find the first Gentiles coming to faith. And I imagine a lot of believers said, not them, not him, not them. Father, as we look in the word, teach us, teach us about this great divide that can be overcome through the gospel in Christ's name. Amen. As I look at our world, if you look at our world, if you look at the headlines or you watch the news, you recognize we love to hate. I mean, we absolutely love to hate. Muslims hate Christians. Christians hate Muslims. Republicans hate Democrats. Democrats hate Republicans. Blacks hate whites. Whites hate blacks. Aggies hate longhorns. Longhorns hate Aggies. Cowboys hate referees. And referees (laughs) hate cowboys. Amen. I mean, that took place when I was gone, and uh, I looked at it and said, how is that not a catch? And we recognize that there's hatred everywhere in the whole world. Hatred. We we suffer from racial divides, uh, ethnic divides, religious divides, economic divides, political divides, and we hate. But one of the greatest divisions and one of the greatest hatreds, one of the deepest divides that ever existed was taking place in the first century. It was a hatred between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew hated the Gentile, the Gentile hated the Jew. I wrote an article that was published in Temple Telegram when I was gone and it dealt with that same thing. The, the, Jew, the Jewish men had a prayer and part of that prayer was every morning, God, thank you for not making me a woman or a Gentile. I bet that really endeared them to their wives and to their neighbors, right? Lord, thank you for not making me a woman or a Gentile. Part of their prayer, that's how much their hatred was for Gentiles. And so we find this deep, deep, deep divide. Saul of Tarsus comes to Christ and we say, not him. Gentiles come to Christ, we say, not them. The divide between Jew and Gentile was as wide as the Grand Canyon. And now that divide's supposed to disappear. Well, Acts chapters 9 and 10 deal with that divide and how it was overcome. It begins with the validation of Peter through two miracles. You see, up until now, if you journey with us through the book of Acts, what we saw early on in the early church is that Peter is the leader of the church. And in Acts 1 through 4, we see Peter and John are the central figures. But then all of a sudden it shifts and the spotlight is up on a man named Stephen. Then the spotlight is upon Saul of Tarsus. So Peter comes back on the stage. And when Peter comes back on the stage, there's the need to validate Peter as the leader of the church, as an apostle. And so what happens is in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 32, all the way through 42, Peter performs two miracles. I remind you that the purpose of miracles in the scriptures is to authenticate the messenger and his message. 
And so Peter has been out of the spotlight. Luke records two miracles. Luke is the author of Acts. He records two miracles that Peter performs. And I believe the reason he brings those two miracles into focus, he heals a guy named Ananias and a woman named Dorcas or Tabitha. And the reason why this is done is to show that Peter, he validates Peter. Peter is still the leader of the disciple band. Peter is still the leader of the church. Peter now is authenticated his message and him as the messenger. And so Peter's authenticated. The only thing I'd like to say about those miracles or respond in in response to that or looking at these uh, are two things. First of all, when when Peter heals somebody, the, the focus is not upon Peter. Peter does not become a celebrity. He doesn't go on a healing tour. He doesn't write a book on how to heal. The focus is not upon Peter. In fact, if you look at verse chapter 9, verse 35, the focus is upon the Lord. The focus is on what happens as a result of those miracles. Uh, look at verse 35. It says this. I'll put it in front of you. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and did what? They turned to the Lord. The focus is not upon Peter. The focus is upon Jesus and people turning to the Savior. In chapter 9, verse 42, this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. So if you look at verse 35, they turned to the Lord. If you look at verse 42, they believed in the Lord. If you write in your Bibles, underline those two phrases at the end. When Peter healed people, the focus was not upon Peter, but it was upon the Lord who gave him the power to heal. And many people turn not to Peter, but they turn to the Lord. That stands in contrast to what we see today in many ministries where the focus upon the person who heals, so to speak, or does miracles, the focus upon that person rather than the Savior. And I would say there should be great caution. It's like railroad railroad warnings that go off. We should have great cautions not to proceed in that direction when people focus upon themselves rather than upon the Savior. So Peter performs miracles, the the church grows, many people get saved, and the focus and the spotlight is upon him that is a savior, not upon Peter. And the result is miraculous growth of the church. Well, that's followed by the visions of Cornelius and Peter. So Peter is uh, validated as a leader of the church. He's validated through two miracles. He's validated, his message is validated. He is the messenger is validated. And now we see a couple of visions. The first vision is by a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius' story is found in verses 1 through 8. Peter, if you look at verse 43, is in a city named Joppa. Cornelius is in a place called Caesarea. Uh, There's a map up in front of you. Joppa is on the, uh, right here on the minute. Mediterranean. This is the nation of Israel. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Bethlehem. Joppa's right here. If you go just a little further north on the seacoast, there's Caesarea, and that's where uh, where, where uh, Cornelius is. So you've got Peter and Joppa. Cornelius here. It's about 30 to 40 miles from the two. By the way, on the trips we've been privileged to lead to Israel, we'll be leading in May. One of the places we go to is Caesarea by the sea. That's where most of this will take place. And so uh, that kind of uh, acclimates you to the geography and the setting of what's happening. So Cornelius is in Caesarea. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. There's a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. So he's a centurion. He's a commander of 100 men. He's a man of influence. If you do the chronology, this is about five years after the resurrection of Christ. Let that sink in for a second. Five years. Five years have passed. Right now, the church is almost 100% in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is filled with Jewish people. 
the first five years, the church has not really moved out of the confines of Jerusalem. And so for the first five years, the church is Jewish in nature. When Cornelius comes to faith, the guy we're dealing with, all of a sudden things begin to change. There was this great divide, this great divide. It's a divide that we can barely understand because it's so vast and so wide. A Jewish person would have nothing to do with a Gentile person. In fact, if he brushed up against a Gentile person, he would call out unclean. He would never dine or eat in the house of a Gentile. Although he was called, the Jewish people were called to be light into the darkness of the Gentile world and to release them from prisons, they refused to be part of them. Part of it had to do with the dietary restrictions. A Jewish person couldn't go into a Gentile's house because if they were offered a meal, they would have to have table fellowship, fellowship around the table, and most of the stuff that the Gentiles ate, the Jews could not eat, and therefore they would be unclean. So there's a religious divide, there's a social divide, the divide is great between the two. That's the battle that's being faced in the early church. It's a tremendous battle. It it was a battle that uh, is something that's very difficult for us to understand and relate to. Cornelius, verse 2, is a devout man. He feared God with all his household. He gave alms to the Jewish people. He prayed to God continuously. About the ninth hour, he has a vision. The vision in verse 4 says, your prayers have been answered. They've ascended to God. So I want you to go and find a man named Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying in Joppa. I want you to send some guys and to fetch him. That's basically the dream he had. So God uh, appears to, or an angel appears to Cornelius in a dream, and he says, uh, there's a guy in Joppa, his name's Peter, go find him and bring him. Well, at the same time, Peter is in Joppa. Look at uh, verse 9. It it says, on the next day, as they were on their way, uh, that is, Cornelius has dispatched uh, two of his servants and a soldier. They're going to look for Peter, these three guys. And it says, on the next day, as they were on their way, uh, approaching the city, Peter went up at a housetop to pray. So Peter heads up to the housetop that he's staying with. He's staying with a guy named Simon the Tanner. And he's staying there and he goes up to pray. Verse 10. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. Yes, there's a part of this passage I can relate to. That's it right there. I mean, Peter gets hungry. I mean, it's getting later in the day and he probably hadn't eaten and he's uh, gone to pray. And uh, I don't know, when we go to pray, Satan will do anything to keep us from praying. And Peter gets up to the uh, rooftop and his stomach begins to growl. And rather than praying, he realizes he's hungry. And as he's hungry, uh, the scriptures say in verse 10, while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. So Peter told somebody he was hungry and maybe it's a time to cook. And, and so Peter smells the food and he's ready to eat. I mean, Peter, I, I don't know, when I get hungry, I, I fall into a trance too sometimes. I'm thinking about, you know, bone-in ribeyes, garlic mashed potatoes, grilled asparagus, uh, uh, whatever you think about, I don't know, that's me. And, and so he falls into a trance, but an amazing thing happens. So he beheld this guy, opened up, a sheet came down, lowered by four corners, and he looks in the sheet, and there are four kinds of there are kinds of there are all kinds of four-footed animals, crawling creatures. This is verse twelve, and birds. So he looks out. There's all these animals and these birds, and then a voice calls out, "Peter, arise, kill, and eat." Now, for some of you, it sounds like the opening of deer season, doesn't it? I mean, but to Peter, this is so crazy. I mean, he looks out and he sees these animals 
And his response is, verse 14, Lord, I never have eaten anything unholy and unclean. God, I, I can't kill and eat those animals. You see, back in Leviticus chapter 11, write it down in your notes. You can take a look at it later. God has given the nation of Israel very specific dietary standards, including in those dietary standards. I, I'll, read it, I'll read it for you. Nevertheless, you are not to eat these things that chew the cud or among those who divide the hoof. Uh, you, should not eat the, you should not eat the camel, which I say amen to that. You shall not eat the rabbit. You shall not eat the pig. No ham, no bacon, no pork chops. Nation of Israel, Jewish people cannot have it. Goes on and he says, whatever's in the sea and the rivers that do not have fins and scales, uh, you are not to eat these. You're not to eat shrimp. You're not to eat crawfish. You're not to eat crab. You're not to eat lobster. Papados would close. That's it. Very strict dietary requirements. And now the sheet comes down has all this stuff on it. And Peter looks at it, and God says, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter's response is, no way. I've never touched anything like that. I've never had a slice of bacon in my life. I've never had a pork chop in my life. I've been a fisherman my whole life. I threw the shrimp back. I threw the crabs back. I threw the lobster back. I wish they would throw them towards me, but I am not going to do that. Here's the punchline. Verse 15. Peter, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unclean. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Three times. Peter, arise, kill and eat. Arise, kill and eat. Arise, kill and eat. God, I can't do it. I've made it clean. There is this great divide. And the divide is not just over religion, it's over social customs, it's over dietary laws. God, how can I do that? How can I do that? The the divide is so great. The divide is so great. How can I do this? You see, the lesson that Peter was receiving was really not about food, but it was about people. It was about people. Because Peter's going to learn a lesson in a second. And it's going to be, you know, Peter, God shows no partiality towards anyone. The divide is great. When we were in the Middle East last week, we were in the country of UAE, United Arab Emirates, one of the cities there is Dubai. We saw the great divide. I mean, there is a tremendous divide there. This is what the Emirati men look like who are there. They are very wealthy. It's a nation filled with wealth. We were told that every Emirati man receives about $600,000 per year to live on. Uh, That's just a stipend for happen to be an Emirati. And some of you say, I wish I was born an Emirati. No, you don't. No, you don't. I mean, the reality of it is they are mostly moderate Muslims. They're not militant, and most of them are nominal, actually, and they've got so much money they could care less about anything else. It's a city of halves. I mean, this is Dubai. It looks like you're in the middle of the Jetsons. Uh, This building over here is the tallest building in the world. It's the Burj. And, uh, I mean, it's amazing. We went up to the 127th floor. I mean, you look down at a building that has 80 floors, it looks like a piece of Lego. And, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. You're surrounded by opulence. You're surrounded by wealth. Uh, this is what some of the homes of Emiratis look like. Just Google up Emirati homes. I mean, it's, it's filled with wealth. You can have two or three wives, and so you would see a fence around a compound of three houses that look like this, and it would be for the man and his three wives, just surrounded by opulence. But the divide was great because there are one million Emiratis, but there are four or five million people who serve the Emiratis, and they live like this. 
Uh, they, they live in dormitory styles, slave labor camps in some ways. This picture to me is very graphic. You have people eating rice with their hands with the great city of Dubai in the background. The divide is so great. It's like the divide we see in our nation in many ways between black and white, rich and poor, Democrat, Republican, you name it, we see the divide as well. The divide between Jew and Gentile was even greater. It was even greater. And they have these visions and all of a sudden this divide is supposed to be overcome in some way and Peter's background is supposed to be changed and Peter says there is no way that this is going to happen. In chapter 10, verse 15, it says he has cleansed it, no longer consider it holy. What's happened? What's changed? Peter's life has been turned up. He, he is like a piece of clothes in a washing machine going round and round and round. I mean, think about it. Christ is resurrected and now they worship not on the Sabbath, but they worship on Sunday. His whole life, he had gone to worship on Sabbath. His whole life, he had brought sacrifices and had gone to the synagogue and gone to the temple on occasion. And it was there he brought sacrifices, but now he no longer has to bring sacrifices because Christ has been sacrificed for him. His world is turned upside down. And now the sheet is lowered from the heavens and he sees all these animals. And all of a sudden he says, go and eat all of it. It's clean because God has cleansed it. Peter's world, his mind has to be blown. He's got to be blown. His whole life has been changed. Everything he has learned as a little boy growing up has been totally changed. Every price tag has been reversed. Everything he revered has been changed. All the traditions he followed are gone. And Peter stands before God and he says, God says to him, Peter, it's all clean now. Look at verse 17. Peter was greatly perplexed. I love that statement. You bet he was. You bet he was. Uh, All of a sudden, everything that had been near and dear to him has been changed because Christ has changed it all. I mean, he's changed it all. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes this statement at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, they had no idea what that meant, but now they're having to live it out. And when the disciples heard that, I mean, we're five years post-resurrection when we go to Acts chapter 10. So Christ would have said those words about eight years before. When Christ said those words at the Sermon on the Mount, I guarantee you those disciples had no idea the extent of what that meant when he said, I've come to fulfill the law. Now they worship on a different day. They eat different foods. I mean, all this has changed. It's so hard for us to appreciate. Peter is greatly perplexed. You ever ever feel greatly perplexed? I, I love that statement. Greatly perplexed. Uh, We men struggle to understand you as women. Uh, I I think this kind of shows the way we feel. We get greatly perplexed. Top 10 things men understand about women. There they are right there. (laughs) How many of you men are greatly perplexed when it comes to understanding women? Raise your hand. There we go. Greatly perplexed. Now you know what the word means, right? I I mean, Peter is greatly perplexed. He he looks at this and says, Lord, what what are we going to do? How do we do this? What does this mean? Then I want you to look at verse 23. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. If you write in your Bibles, underline that verse. Say, why, Gary? Who is Peter inviting into his house? Gentiles. Gentiles. I mean, for Peter to open his door to a Gentile, 
It was absolutely amazing. Come in. He's beginning to understand what he's being taught. The object lesson is taking place. In fact, through this, Peter begins to understand the Great Commission. If you drop all the way down to verse 35, Peter, or verse yeah, 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one who shows partiality, but in every nation the man who fears God and does what is right is welcome to him. Verse 43, of him, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I've circled the words every nation in verse 35, everyone in verse 43, drawn a line between them. Peter gets it. Peter gets it. You see, before it was just the Jewish believers. But now what Peter recognizes is that the gospel is open to everyone. God is not a God who shows partiality, but God is a God who welcomes everyone to his table. God is a God who says, everybody's welcome if you trust Christ. It doesn't matter if you're short or tall. doesn't matter if you're fat or skinny. doesn't matter if you're red, white, or blue. It doesn't matter if what color your skin is. doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. Anybody can come to the cross and know the Savior. And when that happens, we're placed in the same body without divide. When I look at this, you see Peter's great understanding of the Great Commission, that now everyone can come to the table. And then it ends with the great divide being bridged. In Acts chapter 2, we already studied Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes, the church is born, many are saved. These are all Jewish people. But one author rightly calls, I think, chapter 10, verses 44 through 48, the Gentile Pentecost. The Gentile Pentecost. Because here, Cornelius comes to faith. One of the first Gentiles, where he had Ethiopian eunuch, but he was headed elsewhere. Cornelius dwells right in Israel. And so it says in verse 44, Peter was still speaking these words. The Holy Spirit fell upon him. All all those who heard the message were listening. And all the circumcised believers with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. They were speaking in tongues. Peter answered and said, can we not, can anyone refuse water? They need to be baptized. They've received the Spirit. And Peter stays on for a few days in a Gentile household you know to us we read that and think it's interesting kind of cool this guy named Cornelius a Roman cohort or leader of the Roman army comes to faith and Peter's there to witness it and he's part of it and kind of a cool story I'm a Gentile As far as I know, I don't have any Jewish blood in my body. Some of you do, but most of us don't. You see, whereas in the first five years the church was all Jewish, now the church is almost all Gentile. Things have reversed. Things have changed. And we say, well, this is a cool story because that's my background, that's your background. I'm part of the Gentile Pentecost. You're part of the Gentile Pentecost. These are our roots. But here's the reality. There was a tremendous divide to overcome. And it took much for it to be overcome. 
I think there's still a tremendous divide in the world. Tremendous divide. We love to hate. I grew up in New Orleans in the 1960s. I was born in 54, so I was in elementary school, junior high school in the 60s, graduated high school in 72. If you know anything about uh, life in the Deep South in the 60s, it was a time of intense and deep hatred. Intense and deep hatred. Growing up in the Deep South, I went to high school. They segregated us by sex. They didn't want the white girls going to school with the black boys. We all knew that. They didn't tell us that. Everybody knew it. It was just a tragedy. So I went to a public all-boys high school to segregate racially. Tragic. Hey, we were told, hey, you don't sit on the same toilet seats. You don't eat with the same fork. You don't drink out of the same water fountain. You certainly don't date and go out. It's not right. And I, I was conflicted because I also played ball. And so some of my best friends were black dudes. And we had a goal in our backyard with a patio and they could come play. And some of our neighbors didn't appreciate that. But it didn't matter to us, these were my friends. But there was such a bitter hatred in that day and age. I fear some of it lingers till today. I am grateful that TBC is filled with black, white, Hispanic, Asian. We've got everything here. I pray we become more and more integrated and less and less segregated because under the cross of Christ and through the cross of Christ, we are one. But here's my question. Who do you not welcome to the table? No, really. You're saying, yeah, I don't have a prejudiced bone in my body. I, I love everybody. Really? Who do you hope you don't have to share your mansion with in heaven? Think through that one. Who is your not them? Oh God, not them. I don't want them to come to faith. Is it a gender issue? Sexual orientation issue? Racial issue? Socioeconomic issue? political issue God if I get to spend eternity in heaven with a democrat I'm going to die <laughs> and that democrat's thinking if I get to spend eternity with that republican I'm going to die and if that gay person comes to faith and I've got to spend eternity with them I'm going to die and God if you put me with that homophobe forever I'm going to die See, the divide between the Jew and Gentile was so great, so powerful, so deep. And when Peter is told you can eat everything because God's cleansed it, go to Cornelius' house. We can't imagine how his heart must have beat out of his chest and how he must have thought, God, did I hear you right? And is this really what you want me to do? Pride and prejudice are overcome by the gospel. Everything's overcome by the gospel. This is a bulletin board I took a picture of. It's at the Oasis Hospital. We are blessed to have two families that live in Alaline UAE. Uh, Brenda McLaughlin is an OB-GYN physician, Tim and Nino Fincher, and their two boys live there. Tim's an ophthalmologist. 
Uh, they, are, they, they are there for the gospel and for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Wes and Samantha, where are you guys? I saw you walk in last hour. You're out there somewhere. Wes and Samantha are moving there uh, this summer, as well as uh, Brandon and Sarah Brewer. We'll have four families on the ground in UAE. It's a uh, pray for these folks. I mean, uh, it, it's not the easiest place to live, separated from family. I, I have a great appreciation for a greater appreciation for our missionaries after being there. Oasis Hospital exists in UAE because one of the sheikhs, one of the guys who is one of the big oil guys and uh, the leader of the nation, uh, when his mother was pregnant, she had a problem pregnancy, there was a missionary physician there, and that missionary physician was used by God to save the life of this man who became a leader of the nation. And so just recently, within the last five years, he donated about $400 million to build a new hospital. So you go there, this new hospital is complete now. Uh, there are no patients yet. They haven't moved in. The only thing open is Starbucks. You can go get coffee and enjoy Starbucks, and uh, one day they'll send patients there. They need some more money to get equipment, et cetera. But one of the things uh, we noticed as we went there, and I've seen this before, but first time, firsthand, they allow a church to exist there, to church for expatriates, people from other nations that live there. And they've got a building. I was privileged to speak three times in the English-speaking church. What you see there is a list of churches, the days and times they gather, where they gather, and the language the church is in. There are 28 different church services on a weekend. There's a Nepalese service, a Pakistani service. There are about seven different Indian services in different dialects. There are, I mean, people from around the world come to work there to serve and to work. And I'm studying Acts 9 and 10 while I'm on this trip. And I'm reading about Peter seeing food come down from the sky and recognizing that God has told him people from every nation. God has no partiality. And I walk up and I see this sign. And I thought, that's what God was doing in Acts chapter 9. That's what he was saying in Acts chapter 10. He's saying the gospel is open to everyone. 28 different groups from about, I don't know how many countries, worshiping in a Muslim nation, serving Jesus. I mean, it blows my circuits. I stood and preached to this group and during this, uh, one of the church services I'm preaching in, uh, we hear a shouting outside and uh, the elder gets up to introduce me and said, you heard the celebration outside. Uh, uh, there were 10 Ethiopians getting baptized in the courtyard. These Ethiopians come from Ethiopia to work. What they don't know, they really came to UAE to meet Jesus. So they meet a savior. They get baptized. While well, some bald-headed fat guy is preaching in English <laughs> to a group of people from 15 different countries but I'll speak English because in Acts chapter 10, God told Peter, the doors are open. Anybody can come. And they came and they're still coming. And we have the privilege to tell people the door is still open. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the story of the door being opened of this Gentile Pentecost of the message that continues of the good news of the gospel. 
Father, we have heard from Gino and Patty how forgiveness is so essential for us. God bless them and others who need to experience that forgiveness. Some the forgiveness of Christ for the first time. Others because of sinful choices we have made and we need to come to the foot of the cross and experience the forgiveness that only you can give. And Father, we're grateful that one day in heaven we'll be surrounded by people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping the same Savior. In the meantime, help us to be purveyors of truth to those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.